1: We begin the program with Alan Ruskin of Deutsche Bank. Here's a line from Alan for you. G10 central banks have expanded their collective balance sheet by $2.7 trillion. And two-thirds of this comes from one central bank alone, the Federal Reserve. Alan, fantastic to catch up with you and brilliant research, as always, with the team over at Deutsche. Just run us through the compare and contrast right now between Europe and the U.S.
2: Um, well John, I think you're absolutely right uh, you know to- uh, make the distinction not only in terms of what's going on in terms of monetary policy but what's going on in terms of the fiscal policy. In fact fiscal policy may be more important but on the monetary policy side we all knew that coming into a crisis Europe starting off with negative rates was not going to be able to do very much uh, that there was a little bit more leeway uh, from the Federal Reserve but it didn't just stop there really. Um, we also knew that both central banks would get pulled into unorthodox policies notably you know, expanding their balance sheets and So far, you know, the action has all been on the Federal Reserve side. Perhaps uh, Europe has, you know, not really come off the QE the way uh, that QE after the 2008 crisis, the way the Federal Reserve did. So um, the Fed, you know, was uh, obviously shrinking its balance sheet, now massively re-expanding its balance sheet. But, you know, it's it's tended to show uh, a few limits. It's uh, uh, we know the detail in terms of, you know, willingness to extend out the credit structure. So. The Federal Reserve, as the world's most important bank, is doing uh, everything it can to ameliorate what is you know, really seen as the sharpest uh, decline in output uh, in modern economic history.
1: Pretty easy at this point, Alan. I'm sure you'd agree to identify the differences between the United States and Europe, yet pushing that view through the market is actually far more complex. Through the month of April, over the last three, four weeks, we've had a range on euro dollar of what? 107? out towards 110, 109, pretty tight, narrow trading range in G10, Alan, given the differences that you see in Europe and the United States. Why?
2: Yeah, I think the market's a little bit befuddled in terms of just trying to uh, ascertain, you know, firstly, do you respond to the fact that uh, the US is uh, policy measures have inevitably expanded uh, uh, debt as far as the eye can see. So I think there's a sort of a latent concern there about uh, fiscal deficits and debt. Um, and then I think, you know, there are other elements there where people are considering what is the labor market response going to be like in the U.S. versus Europe um, U- US, uh, in the U.S., you're certainly seeing unemployment ticking up very, very sharply. In Europe, it perhaps is going to be a little bit slower. Um, is that flexibility a good or bad thing? The market's confused on that issue. And then I think the other element is just, you know, just the course of this virus. I think there's uh, certainly some concern. That the U.S.'s response is going to be uh, trickier going forward, particularly when one state, you know, for example, uh, opens and uh, sort of shifts away from lockdowns, another state maybe doesn't, but you still have uh, travel between two states. That that sort of problem that you have in the United States, you're probably not going to have in Europe. So. Um, I think there's a multitude of different factors the market's looking at, and they've got bigger fish to fry, as it were. I think, you know, particularly in the emerging market world, um, you know, currency traders, that's really seizing on on, on trading in that space.
0: Well, that's right where I wanted to go, just because of time, uh, Alan Ruskin. And to me, the single moment on this Friday is Brazil. Brazil's basically got to get to Monday. How urgent is it for Brazil to begin to solve some of their problems?
2: Um, well, it's been urgent for a long time. I think the, the big issue you face with Brazil and a few other emerging market countries is they came into uh, this crisis with uh, a fiscal problem to begin with. And there's a long history, of course, going back, you know, now going back a long way where central banks have been asked to effectively finance fiscal deficits. Um, so deficits have not been necessarily that easily financed. Um, and I think, that you know, the history... Uh, with uh, both in terms of the long term and the short term is, is 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 deeply problematic, and usually it's going to resolve itself partly in the safety valve that exists, which is the currency, and that's exactly what we're yeah. seeing.
3: Well, that's exactly what we're seeing, except that you would expect the dollar to weaken then. I mean, you'd expect the dollar to eventually weaken if the Federal Reserve is basically monetizing the debts of the United States. And that seems by all means what it's doing as its balance sheet expands by $2.4 trillion since the end of February. Why are we not seeing a weaker dollar?
2: Uh, Lisa, so let me just uh, you know make a quick distinction between what I was saying earlier, which was really related to Brazil um, and why the Brazilian real is actually you know weakening. Uh, the dollar is a bit of a special case. <laughs> um, so I think uh, you know being the major global reserve currency, there's you know some sense there that. Um, regardless of some of the policies in the short term and perhaps even in the longer term. Uh, the, numerous transactions have been done and uh, there have been enormous balance sheet in, you know, imbalances effectively which have resulted in liquidity-related demand for the dollar. So I think what you saw particularly you know, uh, three or four weeks back was the dollar had a natural bid because of what effectively were um, Bank-related imbalances. We saw it particularly as it related to Japanese banks, to a lesser degree, uh, European banks as well. Um, whereby there was extraordinary demand for dollars. And if you actually look at what the central bank has done, um, the, you know, these swap lines to the BOJ, I think, a, you know, been utilized to the extent of about 200 billion, Europe about 150 billion. So there has been a strong need for dollar liquidity globally. um, And without that liquidity, the dollar would have been even stronger.
1: Alan, always great to get your thoughts on this program. Alan Ruskin, Neff, Deutsche Bank. I hope you and yours are doing well. Alan, thank you very much for joining us
0: get a, a larger global view on oil. He is a head of uh, Commodities and Derivative Research, Francisco Blanche for the Bank of America. Francisco, as you write your research for the weekend, where's the most efficacious price of oil right now? I've lost track. Where's the the good spot for Brent crude to be right now?
4: Well, um, I, think, I think Thomas, as you pointed out, the, um, the economic uh, data is so distant that the uh, yeah, Commodities have nowhere to hide. And the commodity markets provide a, a completely unfiltered view of, of the uh, economic reality that we are facing today, which uh, which is completely unprecedented. We've never stopped the world for a few months um, out of a sudden. And uh, and, and, and the, the problem in oil markets just keeps passing from country to country. When OPEC decided to cut production uh, a couple of weeks ago, the... Um, the price of um, the price of, of, of uh, Dubai and Oman grades uh, was lifted directly into the price of Brent, but it didn't do anything to prevent WTI from trading negative at the beginning of the week. So uh, remember that that uh, the more landlocked you are, the less access you have to infrastructure, uh, the more difficult it is to place your crude today, and the more likely you are to have to shut in your well. And that's what we are seeing right now. We're seeing strong signals to producers to essentially cap their wells and stop flowing barrels into the pipelines.
1: Are they responding to that, Francisco, as far as you can see? Uh,
4: well, uh, they, they uh, you look at the real-time data, they are not yet. Uh, the, the only response that we've started to see is OPEX, um, although uh, the deal doesn't really come into play until May, which, of course, is Friday next week. Um, so, so the issue we are facing here, going back to the point that you guys were making, is you have a 30 percent drop in U.S. GDP, maybe more. You have a 22, 25 percent drop in Japan GDP. What does that mean for oil demand? Well, it means oil demand is going to fall by about 25 percent this quarter. And COVID-19 is particularly harsh on oil because COVID-19 is a crisis of mobility, um, and, and oil is the fuel of transportation. So as a result, oil is the most impacted energy commodity and probably just the most impacted commodity, period. Um, so so we, are seeing, uh, we are seeing a very complicated situation here because even the OPEC deal, which is very large, is the largest ever. It's only 10 million barrels a day, which is about 10%. So, so you're, you're still producing a lot of excess oil while we're all sitting at home not driving and not flying. And that's that's really the main issue. We we need to get back to work to save the oil market here.
3: Francisco, yesterday Mohamed Alarian was speaking with John Farrow. And he talked about a growing cognitive dissonance in markets. I recommend you watch the interview. It was really, really interesting and and, and stark, but it highlights that cognitive dissonance perhaps is most prevalent in the oil market. We've got theory kind of bumping up against the physical reality where there are not enough places to store oil. And I'm wondering the theory that demand will pick up at some point, when does that fail? I mean, how far out in the contracts could we potentially see zero or negative pricing as? facilities fill up?
4: Well um, we, we got a glimpse of it this week and, uh, and prices at the end of the day in commodity markets are signals for uh, either consumers or producers or infrastructure operators like pipeline operators or storage owners to take action. And, uh, and, and, and the signal right now is that you should be buying cheap oil in the front end of the curve and storing it forward. So I don't think that forward prices are going to collapse um into spot i mean over time they may and they will they will right so that the curve rolls down but it's not like the entire curve comes comes down immediately because um uh, there there is uh there, there is first of all the need to to push oil into storage and secondly there is going to be the expectation naturally that the economy is going to get back to some kind of normal at some point and and i know i don't know what that looks like but uh but when you look at the equity markets, you look at the S and P at 2,800, and you look at the fixed income markets uh, trading, uh, frankly, a lot better than they did in March. Um, I guess I guess we we are all under under the impression that things are going to get back to normal. That's what we were hearing from Secretary Mnuchin. That's what we're hearing from the White House. That's what we're hearing from our world leaders. And uh, and maybe it doesn't happen. But uh, but in the meantime, the, the Fed is doing an amazing job uh, papering things over. And uh, that's what's keeping asset values uh, where they are. And uh, and 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 the governments are, are are expanding, as you said before, their their fiscal budgets to essentially send people money. The real problem we have is that we are not producing any output. So, Sir so, uh, we are we are sending people money at a at time when the economy is not really. It, it, where, where actual output is down thirty forty percent, and I think that's going to be. Uh, Very, very good for gold, and that's why we made a call that gold's going to go to 3,000 over the course of the next 18 months because of what's going on on the monetary front and and on the fiscal front.
1: 3,000 on gold. Francisco, that's a huge call. When you make that call on the phone to clients in communication with them, what's the huge pushback right now?
4: Well, I think people are are a little confused about what what's happening on a macro basis. Uh, I, I'm not getting a lot of pushback. I think people are, are are realizing that yeah. this is that this is a major major change in the Fed's balance sheet. They're going to double the balance sheet, maybe triple the balance sheet. The last time the Fed did that, gold basically doubled in value. So, um, and that was during the global financial crisis. Um, so, <clears throat> so that's why we're making this call. We think that that, that the expansion oh. of the Fed's balance sheet will will push the ultimate safe haven up pretty dramatically here.
0: Uh, Francisco, we got to continue this discussion uh, on gold. We'll do that uh, another time. Francisco Blanc, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it with Bank of America. We need to frame up here the end of April, this historic moment we're in and trying to stagger into May and of course with the pandemic we go from May 5th to the middle of May and many people now even beginning to talk into June. I know India is doing that as a nation. David Kelly is at JP Morgan Asset Management and really quite good linking economics into the investment at world. David, what will you think about this weekend? What will you write forward to Monday?
5: Uh, I'm probably going to be writing about, you know, there's another fiscal package which has just been passed by the House and we're, we're adding an awful lot of government debt here and, you know, we're, really we've got packages that will take us through the middle of the summer but it looks to me like we still won't have an economy that's really even on a significant road to recovery until the middle of next year and that's an awful lot of extra government debt and, and the central banks are just monetizing this debt so it's it's really, you know, what is the limit there in terms of how much the government how much debt the government can issue and how much debt the central bank will buy without actually setting up a real problem down the road
1: David, there's a real willingness, I think, over the last several weeks to just discount and ignore the economic data that we've had. But the economic data that we've had, even if it has been expected, does inform you, does tell you something about how difficult the recovery will be. If you've got 26 million people applying for initial jobless claims and they're sitting there waiting for a job, how quickly do those jobs come back?
5: Well, I think... We will get a lot of momentum in the second half of next year once we have a, a vaccine. The problem is just getting getting to that point. But once you do have a vaccine, I mean, there there are ways you could do this more efficiently because there are a lot of companies that will, will find it hard to restart. Uh, but there will be a huge demand for a lot of the entertainment, leisure, services, um, restaurants, retail that, that uh, people will be missing out on. So you'll get a lot of momentum going in the economy if you can finance the new companies that will then employ people to do these things. Um, you, you can reemploy people pretty, pretty quickly, so I think the economy by 2022 will be uh, will have a, a strong head of steam, and the unemployment rate will be coming down rapidly. Uh, but still, so that's you know so we've got to finance an awful lot of misery between now and then.
3: When you talk about financing the Missouri, I want to go to your point of debt monetization. Basically, this is the idea that the U.S. is selling trillions of dollars of treasuries and the Federal Reserve is buying them all up to suppress borrowing costs and create natural Mm -hmm. demand. The the balance sheet of the Fed has increased by $2.4 trillion since Mm -hmm. the end of February. What is the longer term consequence of this if it isn't inflation and it isn't a debasement of the dollar?
5: Well, I mean, it's hard to debase the dollar against any other currency. I think I think there's a, the U.S. has got a lot of advantages because other other countries are doing the same thing. The dollar has always been a sort of preferred currency. Um, but we, we, do, we are running a risk. I mean, I think that the key thing that has protected us all the way through is actually income inequality because the people who have all these IOUs aren't using them, and so you don't get aggregate demand in the economy picking up. But if you, uh, the, the one thing that would cause an awful lot of problems is if we tried to maintain some sort of egalitarianism as we come out of this, if we tried to help people at the bottom and the middle, which is a very good thing to do, But um, if you do that, you create extra extra demand, and then inflation gets going. And once inflation gets going, people are going to doubt the ability of the Federal Reserve to corral that inflation and doubt the ability of the federal government to service its debt. And that's really the thing that I'm worried about.
0: Okay, but this is the heart of the matter, David Kelly. Do we invest now over a responsible uh, long-term horizon for disinflation or inflation? To me, that's a huge conundrum.
5: Yeah, I, I, think, I think for the long run, you, you, you bet on inflation. Um, uh, you know, we, we, first of all, I'm not sure how much disinflation we're going to get in this huge recession because there's so, so much constraint on supply also. And so it's, you know, usually when you have, um, you know, have a, a, in the Great Depression, you had huge excess supply that all these people yeah, wanted to work, yeah, all the stuff yeah. that people want to sell. But, you know, now we don't. We've got a supply shortage as well as a demand shortage. But when we come out of this, <laughs> we're going to have so much debt and so much demand uh, pent-up demand. I mean, the, the savings rate is, is one of the things we're going to see over the next few quarters is a huge increase in the savings rate. Um, when you push that demand into an economy with a limited supply, you could get inflation. And the whole, you know, the, everything that we've done in terms of ballooning government deficits around the world has all been ca- possible only because of low inflation and low interest rates.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. But that tells me I want to buy stocks. Right now, we're only buying eight stocks out there. Uh, uh, John mentioned we've got Amazon coming out next week on earnings, Microsoft and the other glory stocks. What do you tell JP Morgan asset management clients who go, I just want to buy eight stocks?
5: Well, no, don't, don't, you know, be diversified. Because because you don't know what the next thing that's going to get you is. I mean, if we, we roll the tape back six months ago and, and you ask me, as you, as you do, you know, what are the things that you're really worried about next year? I wouldn't have put pandemic down as my number one risk, but that's the whole point. So you don't own just eight stocks because you might be owning stocks in the one sector that's going to get whacked by whatever it is that's next around the corner. You diversify. And, and frankly... You know, most of the U.S. stock market is not actually being impacted that much by this. It's, it's the U.S. economy that's being impacted. But if you look broadly at technology, at healthcare, care, um, utilities, uh, consumer staples, there are a lot of companies that can actually ride this one out pretty well. Um, so I think there are plenty of opportunities out there, and also international stocks, by the way, are cheaper than U.S stocks, and East Asia is going to come out of this thing faster than the United States. So I think there are plenty of opportunities around the stock market around the world if you want to buy equities to protect yourself against inflation in the long run.
3: David, I'm struggling to understand what you said, the idea that if the middle class benefits from this package of of fiscal support, that that's going to create inflation that's going to somehow be negative. Why isn't that a good thing in the the sense that we're going to end up being able to sort of bail out some of the debts and get the economy kind of to reset a little bit uh, before we move forward?
5: Well first of all I uh, first of all the, the the financial problem is only in the recovery when we come roaring back in the, in the second half of 20 uh, 2021 I want to make that clear uh, and also it is a very good thing to I mean we've got a very unequal society I'd much rather live in a society which was more equal the, the but the key thing is that we have avoided inflation all the way to this point here um you know through that long expansion because the economy was actually getting less equal and more and more money was going to people who were richer who wouldn't spend it um, and the, the thing is that if, if you finally give money to people who are lower-income people or middle-income people who, who are, really want, need the money and will spend the money, then you get that excess demand. I'm not saying it's a bad thing socially. It's just if, you, if, you're, going to, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to find some way of being disciplined enough to tax money off, off richer people to try to prevent demand from soaring above available supply because that's what gives you inflation. And as I said, this whole <coughs> debt... Uh, pyramid is, you know, can only be supported if we have low inflation. That's really central to to, to everything here.
3: Okay. And and basically, this is sort of borne out by the data Michelle Meyer of Bank of America is saying the stimulus checks so far have gone to buying more things, more Mm -hmm. consumption. I am curious, though, if you walk through what happens, why it becomes such a problem to have the inflation that you're talking about?
5: Well, because uh, because right now, you know, the, we're going to come out of this. We went into this with the government debt at about 80% of GDP. We're going to come out of it with uh, the debt at 100% of GDP, which is the highest since, uh, just after World War Two. That's not a problem if you're financing at interest rates of 1%. But if you have higher inflation, you could be financing at 5%. So if you're if 5% on the debt, that's 5% of GDP just going to interest payments. Now, government spending is about you know, 20% of GDP. So you're using a quarter of government spending just making interest payments on the debt. That's going to squeeze everything else. Um, and people are going to wonder, can, you know, is, is there some, some threat that the government won't be able to make these payments at some stage?
0: These are some huge themes for the next year into even two years as well, folks. David Kelly, thank you so much with J.P. Morgan, Asset Management. Joining us right now, Leslie Ventura murray of Chatham House in London with a wonderful perspective on the American experiment. Leslie, I, I look at what we're seeing, and I just take the rule of thumb. You look at the drop in the economy and maybe the expansion of the unemployment rate. You do some fancy geometry and use some fancy words, and you just port that right over to the size of the stimulus. Am I right that the size of stimulus we're heading towards could be as much is five or six trillion in a seventeen trillion dollar economy?
6: It is extraordinary, Tom. I mean, we've already had what a, the fourth uh, stimulus package. We're at three trillion now, and you know the big question is how long does this economic crisis run? And it has everything to do with our ability to tackle the health crisis so it's difficult to predict the numbers until we know how we're going to do on that front how we're going to do on testing when we can reopen the economy Um, and that's really you know that is the key question that's going to drive the size of that stimulus but at the moment it looks like we are headed towards ongoing stimulus packages that are just absolutely critical because the the economy has, has been shut down
1: Leslie, so far, so good. Uh, I've been really impressed by how well Secretary Mnuchin appears to be working with the Democrats to get things done, get things done quickly as well over the last month, six weeks. Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, would like to lead the next effort. And I just wonder if that's the moment where we bump into a little bit of tension, some division between Democrats and Republicans.
6: Look, there's a lot of division already. Um, It is, as you said, it's been remarkably bipartisan in terms of the support. Uh, The Democrats have had a number of wins that they wanted in terms of oversight and any number of things. Um, And as we get closer to the election towards November, once we get to the summer, that partisanship is going to really drive a number of things. But I think the scale of the crisis has, you know, really been something that's, um, at least in terms of the economic response, brought people together. Now, we're seeing something very, very different when it comes to, to dealing with the health crisis, where opinion varies, where the states are battling it out with the, with the, with the, with the government, um, the federal government. Um, but I think, you know, one way or the other, we're going to have to see Congress uh, pulling together with Mnuchin and, and, and driving this response forward, because as we've seen, we're looking at unemployment being possibly as high as 30 percent by the summer.
3: Leslie, uh, to John's point, as he set this segment up, where he was talking about how the fiscal response and the monetary response set the decade for the, for since the uh, 2008 crisis in the U.S. emerged more quickly. Is the size of the package appropriate that we have seen so far out of the United States? How big would be appropriate, given the magnitude of the shock? In the U.S.? Yes. Yeah, I mean, again, to go back to my original point...
6: It's very hard to put a number on it until we see how long we're going to have state after state after state shuttered with small businesses closed, corporates, you know, dialing back because they're working from home, things getting slowed down. Until we know, until we see a, you know, the, 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 the curve of deaths coming down, the hospital capacity, being able to confront that health crisis. Until we know when states are going to reopen, when the economy is going to be reopened, we can't put a number on it. We can't, put a, we can't put a ceiling on it.
0: Leslie, I want to switch gears here. Let's pretend there's no pandemic right now. Buried in the Washington Post this morning is a tiny little article claiming that Vice President Biden is leading the president in this poll or that. And then there's a modest silence, but President, but, uh, Secretary Clinton was doing better at this time versus the president long ago and far away how is the vice president doing how is Vice President Biden doing
6: well you know we are seeing those numbers and we're seeing especially in American Americans age 50 and over that the preference for Biden is 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 really um, much stronger than the, the preference for, for President Trump. Um, but it's a long time out, uh, and as we know, the Vice President uh, Biden has is in an incredibly difficult climate. The, the President of the United States has a, a opportunity every single night to demonstrate, you know, his leadership um, and have have Americans assess that on national television. Biden is not getting that airtime. <coughs> He's um, having you know difficult mm-hmm. getting in, difficulty getting into the public debate. So it's a very it's an uphill battle.
0: Leslie, thank you so much. Leslie Vinger-Murray with Chatham House in London. Greatly appreciate that. Uh, this is the interview of the day on the virology of the moment. He is uh, uh, Andrew Pekosh of the Johns Hopkins University. He's out of Pennsylvania and Rutgers, and he is truly expert on the science that underpins this virus, this horrible virus, and this pandemic. We talked today about the last 24 hour news flow on virology.
7: There's such an important distinction here to make between things that are used as disinfectants, right? That can work on surfaces, Uh, to kill viruses, things that work topically, which are things that you can put on your skin, uh, which kill viruses, uh, versus things that um, you take as as a drug internally in terms of what you can, um, uh, and and, and that affects the virus and can limit the virus. Um, All of these things um, can be toxic to people. Um, It's the Amount that we use, the dose, the uh, the dilution that we use, that brings it down into a level where it's less harmful for us and is still harmful to the to the virus um, or, the, or any other pathogen.
0: I thought the the medical officials within the press conference made clear their unhappiness over these comments, and yet it speaks of the plague in Albert Camus, the desperation to find solutions. You're one of our great virological experts. For you and Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, please tell us how far out there is the solution to this virus.
7: So there are a number of clinical trials that are going on right now and, you know, while while that's not the popular thing to say, there will need some time before we can test some of these treatments to really be sure that they're, number one, not causing any extra harm and number two, truly are effective. And I think the other thing to pay attention to though Mm is, you know, this virus induces a broad spectrum of disease. Um, drugs may be effective against the mild forms of the disease, but perhaps not as effective against the severe forms of the disease. So all of these things have to be investigated with clinical trials to make sure that the treatments that, were, that, that are being proposed are actually effective for particular patient populations. But, Andrew, how many, you know, how many drugs do we know of that could work? Yesterday, there there was quite a a lot of hope and then a big setback when this Gilead drug um, didn't really go as planned in terms of the Chinese trial. How many more of these drugs will fail just like this one did? Yeah, so I think the Remdesivir trial is a great trial. Some details are lacking, but it seems like that was really targeting uh, severe cases of of, uh, COVID-19. Targeting severe cases is very, very difficult because people suffering from those severe cases have a combination of the virus causing damage, but also their immune system causing damage. So, so it may be that relying on just an antiviral drug for severe disease isn't completely uh, the right strategy. We may need to find ways to also temper the immune response that's being induced by the virus for those severe diseases. So remdesivir drug may be able to work in, in more f- mild situations or at early times post infection. How far away to, to actually finding a vaccine are we? Um, a vaccine, we're, we're you know we're in the middle of phase one clinical trials um, for a number of different uh, vaccine platforms. Mm-hmm. We would expect to hear something in the next month or two about some of the initial safety work that's uh, going on uh, with those drug with those vaccines, and then. Um, the trials that are going to be putting it into patients to look for efficacy um, are already being lined up um, under the assumption that some of these drugs will be safe, or that these vaccines will be safe. So we're still about a year away from anything in terms of a practical rollout of a vaccine if everything goes well.
0: Andrew Peckhouse from the Johns Hopkins University. I thought that was exceptionally timely given uh, the news flow of the last 48 hours. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast.